listening to this podcast right now. Do you want to hear a fucking podcast about anything and everything? Yeah. Like movies, oh my music, God. television, and more? Oh my God. Well, you've come to the right place. Yes. Subscribe to Journey into Comics Network, and you get Podcastrophe, oh hosted God. by me, yes. Dick. Why not throw a couple bucks to the Patreon? It's your yes. choice. Yeah. This is a Podcastrophe. That sounds so awesome. The following, the following is a journey into comics. 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 Network. 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 Production. Production. To a nicer guy, it couldn't happen. I'm the man of the hour. The man with the power. Diamonds are forever. He put hard times on Dusty Rhodes and his family. And what you gotta do, Andre? History beckons the Macho Man. Yeah. The best there is. The best of Austin 316 says I just whipped your ass. Two words for you. Two words. Do I have everybody's attention now? What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to another episode of Journey into Wrestling. It's season three, episode four. I am your host, Nate. Woo! And today it's just me. It's a solo match again, folks. Unfortunately, uh, Mr. Matt Waite had kind of got stuck at work, so I got to kind of do this one on the solo spot. We really want to talk some wrestling conspiracies next episode, so he will be joining us uh, for that. Uh, however, uh, you guys probably thought, oh, this episode's not coming out till Sunday. I got a little time to prepare for wrestling. False. We had some situations happen in our personal lives that have moved. Foodies Watching Movies debut into October now, and you're getting Journey into Wrestling on our final Wednesday here on the Journey into Comics Network before we move to the Journey into Comics Network Sunday slot every other Sunday right alongside of the Best of the Week show. So I hope you guys are doing fantastic. We're going to be talking a lot about wrestling today. Uh, there are some things that I could get off my chest, but I want to stay in like a really positive headspace for this podcast. You guys will probably hear what I'm talking about on Journey into Comics 210, which will be coming out next Monday. Be sure to check that out. So anyways, the last time we spoke was the Wednesday before one of our more recent shows, which was on a Friday. We'd played September 7th. And I talked about this a little bit on a Journey into Comics episode, but I want to really dive into it here. So we're driving to the venue and my phone starts blowing up. Bam, 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 bam. Getting tweets and texts and all this shit. And I'm like, what the fuck's happening? So I'm like, Veronica, can you like kind of co-pilot for a second? I'll just, we're on a long stretch of straight road. Like I'm just going to quickly see what the fuck's going on and make sure everything's okay. Make sure it's not like anybody in the family's hurt or something crazy's happening. So I'm checking it and it's my Twitter and it's blowing up. And I'm like, what in the fuck? I don't ever get action on Twitter. This is strange. Um, but as I had mentioned to you guys, uh, Matt Jackson had liked that tweet uh, that I sent to him saying, congrats on all end. Uh, I said, <laughs> at Matt Jackson 13, congrats on all end. It was an absolutely, well, fuck it. Everyone else has said all the amazing things you can say about the whole movement, meaning not just all in, but all in with the Bullet Club and everything they've been doing to kind of be the counterculture to professional wrestling. And I mean that in the best way because they are professional wrestling in the truest form. Uh, I got inspired and cooked this up. Hashtag All In 2, All In, Bullet Club, and the Young Bucks. And it's my All In 2 logo design. You guys can see that on my Facebook. I think I also shared it on the Journey into Wrestling, I'm pretty sure, page. Well, 
I didn't realize this was going to happen. This wasn't anything I planned or thought was going to happen. But Lance Storm, Canadian professional wrestler Lance Storm, retweets my tweet with the picture of All In 2's logo, okay? And he says, don't know if they will do another one, but I like this logo idea. It can work for two, three, four, and five. And it got 128 likes on Twitter and 13 retweets with six different comments. I'm one of them because I thanked Lance Storm. I said, thank you so much for the retweet, nothing but love. Uh, Somebody says, where do four and five come in? Another guy responds, think of it as just as like tallies and not actual Roman numerals, which is not what I'm thinking at all. Dude responds with, ooh, and then someone says, and 50, and 51, and 52, and 53, and 54, and 55. I don't, oh, I think that's more they're saying, like, they want that many to happen. Like, just keep going up to, you know, all in 50. Jesus, that would be forever from now. I'd be 80 goddamn years old, 81 years old at all in 50. That would be fucking wild. Maybe I'll be podcasting then. Who knows? Somebody else, Justin L. Lopez, says, I agree, this is sick. And someone says, I thought maybe Canadian colors, which would also work. Okay, I like that. Someone has a, a gif of Dave Chappelle going, huh? And it says four and five. Like, how would you do that? And again, like I said, I know how I will do four and five. I've actually already designed them. Uh, I'm just waiting for the right time to kind of release more of the concepts that I have for this. Because I love, love, L-O-V-E, love with a capital of. Uh, what the Bucks and Bullet Club and all those guys are doing. They have, like I said just a minute ago, and we talked about it on the last episode, they are doing something that is making wrestling really genuinely cool again. It's not just, like it's hard, and we're going to talk about this today because we're going to kind of go through the annals of wrestling in a lot of different eras and stuff today, look look back 20 years and whatnot, and, and look to the future, obviously. But with the Bullet Club and all this, it makes it really hard for me, anyways, to watch WWE programming. Not that WWE programming is bad. Not because they are the shittiest things and sliced bread. It's just not the same. It's like, okay, here's a great example. This is what I feel genuinely about the difference between your Bucks Bullet Club and the thing they've built with ROH and New Japan and all this. And looking at like what the WWE is, you know? So we have to kind of look at like the production as a whole and not just the wrestling matches and the quality of the matches because that can be subjective as well, you know? When I think about wrestling, sometimes depending on the overall event, personally speaking, affects how I feel about certain matches because if the event feels bigger, if there's something at stake that actually matters and makes it seem bigger, it gives me a bigger scope and scale on how this match is going to play out, you know, so that doesn't matter on WWE programming or otherwise, so we can't really go there, we have to look at everything, and it's like going to a rock and roll concert, and you go to like uh, a club that can fit 500 people, and here's the cool thing about the club that fits 500 people, while it fits 500 people and there are 500 people there, maybe there's actually 700 people there, you are still like in a, in a small enough space to where it's possible you'll bump shoulders with and, and possibly interact with the people you're there to see and the people you're there to support. They haven't outgrown their fan base. And I feel like the WWE in a lot of ways has because when you go and watch them perform, it's like seeing Kiss at a stadium show. It's the lights. It's the fucking everything. It's the overproduction of it all. On a grand scale. It's almost too grandiose at this point. 
when you look back at like old wrestling back 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 in the nineties, you know, it just there was a purity about it because it wasn't what was overdone was the drama and the stakes and the pushing the envelope, but not the production. The production stayed kind of there in the middle for a long time, and they didn't really get crazy about production. They were more focused on a brilliant product. I think that's where All In Bullet Club Company has it locked down. Their ideas are transcending from their YouTube series, where they can set up all these storylines very cleverly that aren't tied to one specific promotion. Then they can go on and, and just tell beautiful stories with their art. And get into it and and get go action crazy. You know what I'm saying? So I think I just I feel in my in my heart of hearts that the Bullet Club has done something special. I'm gonna stop there. But it was really cool just to to finish up on uh, the Landstorm thing to just have him hit me with the retweet and like shout that out to the world and have like bunch of fucking people react. I ended up getting some really cool other stuff that happened out of this and I'm not really trying to brag about Twitter. It's not like a huge deal for me cuz I don't really have never really had um like Twitter success or had a lot of people checking out what the fuck's going on on our Twitter. It's just how it is. Uh which is at JIC network by the way. Uh see that's my problem cuz I don't even like uh I don't even I don't even really promote it that much that well. But uh I had some, I had, uh, what's that company called? Well, One Hour Tees followed me, which that's pretty neat because they are affiliated directly with uh, the Bucks and company. But I also had No DQ Wrestling, I think, right? That's what they're called? I don't want to fuck this up. Yeah, NoDQ.com officially follows the Journey into Comics Network now, which that was a really cool thing. It was like, holy shit, like... People are starting to take notice of at least my design. That's cool. You know, hopefully they'll start they'll start listening to the podcast. We'll have to see. So yeah, that that happened. The Twitter thing happened, and that was cool. And it was like kind of overwhelming. And you know, I was just just a minute ago actually, I was like talking about how wrestling back in the day was better, kind of. And I say kind of because there are ups and downs and ebbs and flows. You can go back and watch classic professional wrestling, like I'm talking 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and you'll see some things you're really like, oh, I remember how awesome this was. But then you'll see other things that are like, what the fuck were they thinking putting that on TV at the, sa- at the same exact time, you know? So I want to do something pretty cool, and we're going to turn the clock back 20 years, and I want to discuss some debuts of professional wrestlers that took place 20 years ago in 1998. These names are names you guys all know and love. And there's a questionable one at the end. So I've got uh, I've got some singles competitors in this. I've got a, a very awesome manager slash female competitor on this list. I've got a couple tag teams on this list. And like I said, I have someone who's questionable, and we're going to discuss why this is questionable, but I digress. So let's get down to it. What wrestlers debuted in 1998 that we could even talk about? Well, let's talk about the first person that comes to mind, the legend, Kurt Angle. Uh, Now, Kurt Angle debuted for the WWE. Uh, I do believe he did a televised event. I I, I I think that was just a spot, though. He was just a a part of an angle on Sunday Night Heat uh, on TV in 99, I guess. Wait. Oh, okay, so technically he didn't really debut in 98. 
according to this, it actually is saying that in October of 98, Angle signed his eight-year contract with WWF. He was assigned to the Power Pro Wrestling Developmental Territory in Memphis, Tennessee, where he began training. In his first television appearance, it happened March 7th of 99, so that's just on the other side of that. Sunday Night Heat, where he took part in an angle with Tiger Ali Singh. The angle involved Singh paying him money to blow his nose on an American flag. He blew his nose on, Sting's, on Singh's flag and fought him off. His first official match was against Brian Christopher, RIP, April 11th of 99. Uh, after several vignettes leading up to the Survivor Series in 99, he defeated Sean Stasiak in his official in-ring debut. Uh, he remained undefeated until he eventually lost to debuting Taz from ECW at the Royal Rumble of the next year, in uh, Royal Rumble 2000. Now, obviously, Kurt Angle's career spans across the board. We could talk about so many different things Angle was a part of, from his early championship runs in the company to his time as a part of Team Angle in the times to uh, when he went on to feud with like Lesnar and Eddie Guerrero or when he left for a little bit and went to TNA and then like the main event mafia and uh, you know, the uh, coming back and getting inducted and all the things that he's done. Kurt angle is an amazing talent. And I, I, I guess we're going to call this one another questionable one. So we'll talk about the other one too. Uh, there's a couple questionable ones on this list. So Kurt angle, I guess, technically speaking, his wrestling debut, not on like a big scale, but in territory work, was in 1998. That is undisputable. I didn't say directly that it was just on WWE programming because some of these guys actually didn't debut on WWE programming and we're going to be talking about them. So up next is someone else who's questionable and I believe this comes from a point where maybe he started training and doing indie matches at the age of 17. But according to this list that I had looked up, Kofi Kingston debuted in 1998. Now if that was true, he would have been, as my math has told me, 17 years of age. It's possible that he started working on his craft at 17 years of age. Uh, that also means that eight years later, he would actually make his early career debut in Chaotic Wrestling, which is, I'm guessing, a, a smaller but still larger, you know, slightly bigger named company. Uh, obviously, he worked developmental territories with WWE in 2006 and 7. He would move into a series of vignettes on TV for ECW in 2007. Uh, he would have some amazing matches versus Randy Orton for the Intercontinental Championship. Uh, or I, actually, I think it was the World Championship. He also, he oh, he defeated Chris Jericho for the IC title at Night of Champions. And uh, that made him the first Guyanian uh, wrestler to hold a World Wrestling Entertainment title. It was also the first wrestling championship in his career. He held it until SummerSlam. And uh, he lost that at SummerSlam to Santino. Uh, obviously now, moving forward into the future of Kofi Kingston, who has had a long-storied career from a, a run as a, in a another Intercontinental and United States champion to uh, a run with uh, tag team champions for with Air Boom, uh, with Evan Bourne, you know. Uh, Kofi is amazing. And then, of course, starting in 2014, he joins up with the New Day, and they've been beating ass, you know. And uh, they are still... Your SmackDown WWE Tag Team Champions, as they would say. So Kurt and Kofi, we'll give it to you. Like I said, with Kofi, I'm not really sure because it doesn't officially state here when his debut happened. But again, it could have been an independent wrestling territory, you know, backyard wrestling or something. And he's noted somewhere in his life and someone has taken note and put it on the internet, hey, 
he said one time that he debuted in 98. So until I until somebody tells me otherwise, we're going to say this one is questionable. Now, there's a couple more coming down the pipe that are definitely debuters in 1998. Let's move to another champion on SmackDown. You guys know him as AJ Styles. His birth name, Alan Neal Jones. Obviously, AJ Styles was... Um, really a force in TNA wrestling and NWA Wildside before uh, he, I guess, was it Wildside officially then? I can't remember if it was just NWA when he was there. I'll have to look into that. Uh, I know he started his career in NWA Wildside for sure, but I don't know if when the TNA thing happened. It was a return to TNA, and NWA Wildside did in fact become TNA Wrestling eventually. But AJ making it a run in NWA for two years, then going to WCW for about a year where they changed his gimmick to rename him Air Styles. And uh, Styles and Paris, like they were a tag team called Air Raid. Their gimmick were both men to dress up in G-suits. Air Raid appeared on Thunder in, on March 5th of 2001. And they entered a tournament for the newly created Cruiserweight Tag Team Championships, but they were eliminated in the first round by the eventual winners, Elix Skipper and Kid Romeo. Now, of course, WCW gets purged just by the WWF. Styles essentially gets put out of a job, not because he wants to be put out of a job, more because he kind of gets pushed out of a job. See, they had to pick up these contracts, and there's some bigger names on WCW. Some of the smaller guys get lost in the shuffle, don't get their actual shot like they deserve, and he ends up leaving back to NWA Wildside, where he competed for the Wildside Heavyweight Championship, wrestled several matches for the WWF on WWF Jacked. He was offered a developmental deal in 2002. Uh, however, uh, he was going to have to relocate to Cincinnati, Ohio, and only offered him $500 a week. He declined because it would have interfered with his wife's college plans, and he wanted her to get a better, better education. He obviously officially returns to Wild's side, and this starts to kind of um, snowball into what eventually becomes TNA. Uh, he goes all around. He goes to Ring of Honor, and then we get the official TNA debut where he was signed uh, as the phenomenal AJ Styles, which you know led to him becoming their champion. He had X Division runs, and I mean, you guys know the history of AJ. Uh, but it's crazy to think his career 20 years ago started, and here we are in 2018, and he is the SmackDown uh, WWE, or I mean, he's the WWE champion over on SmackDown, I guess is how you would say that, um, and had, well, we'll talk about that later for sure. Another star for the WWE who actually did not, necessarily speaking, start at the WWE was Mr. Bobby Roode. So, Bobby Roode debuted in June of 98. Uh, it looks like he started working a Puerto Rican promotion called World Wrestling Council. He worked, oh, oh, he actually worked a series of dark matches with the WWF between 98 and 2004 before he was signed to TNA. Uh, he began working for Real Action Wrestling in 2001, where he formed a heel stable known as the Cardinal Sinners, along with Kingman and Mike Hughes. Uh, and then he went on to TNA, who he wrestled uh, all over. Obviously, Team Canada, the big major feud with Eric Rude, the storyline with Miss Brooks, uh, Beer Money Inc., who can forget that amazing tag team with him and James Storm and the, the tag title runs they had. 
Rude shifts gears in 2011 and starts to kind of push toward the main event, becoming TNA World Champion eventually, uh, holding that for a while on and off. I think he had like a 200 and something odd day. Oh, 256 days, actually. That was, I mean, I was like right on there, but he lost it to Austin Aries, which was cool. Uh, he faced the new heavyweight champion in a non-title match June 19th of Impact Wrestling. The match ended in a no-contest when both competitors were attacked by a group of masked assailants only known as Aces and Eights. So see, Rude has even tied to Aces and Eights, which was another great thing about TNA. There's some cool shit that happened in TNA. Obviously, he goes for pursuits and title reigns uh, until he finally ends up deciding that it's time to be done. He does the Beer Money reunion in 2016 for a short break. He announces that on March 19th, he's leaving TNA. He goes and does a little bit of an independent circuit. Not long. Uh, does a Global Force Wrestling date. Just one uh, date. But I think they... Or, and I mean that, but I think they did the whole taping in like one or two days. And they like had a plan to release it over time. But then... Obviously, Bobby Roode debuts April 1st at NXT TakeOver Dallas. Uh, he's shown in the front row, and they are actually acknowledging him that he is there. And then he goes on to become NXT. NXT. I mean, Bobby Roode is glorious in NXT. I mean, Bobby Roode held the NXT title for a year because he beat Nakamura for the title. And then he had the NXT title all the way until Drew McIntyre beat him at TakeOver Brooklyn 3, which is crazy to think about. Uh, Rude obviously debuts on SmackDown after getting drafted to SmackDown, defeating Aiden English. And then he's kind of been lost in the shuffle recently, which is crazy because he's this star, but he doesn't... It's weird because Bobby Rude is great. He's a phenomenal worker, and he has all this crazy charisma and has the ability to just impress and wow and innovate and whatnot. The issue that kind of comes with Bobby Rude is that keep losing his ass in this shuffle so yeah i love bobby Roode. i think he's fantastic and uh i just feel like he keeps getting lost in the shuffle and not afforded opportunities to really shine i know he was a u.s champ for a short time but i feel like they just keep making mistakes with him he should always be in title contention because he is a big draw and if they would let him shine he will do amazing things. The problem is right now, I fear WWE is starting to lose a little bit of traction because of everything that's been happening with the smaller promotions and what's been going on with Impact Wrestling, getting kind of a resurgence and whatnot. Some of these guys that were more loyal to them, if they aren't treated right in WWE, now's the time they'll jump ship and go back. And now's the time that things will start to change pragmatically for everybody because it's like, oh shit, now we're pedal to the metal, it's on, you know? So another guy who debuts in 1998, uh, Mr. Eric Young, uh, had a debut match October 14th in 98 in Benton Harbor, Michigan, facing his friend Suicide Sean Ball. He would, uh, he would go on to get training from Scott Demore and Chris Canyon, and then he would be all over the place working a lot. In, uh, actually, for the majority of his career, I believe he worked... TNA, 2004 to 2016. He had kind of like the paranoia gimmick for a while, which was cool. And he had the feud with Bobby Roode and James Storm. Uh, Super Eric gimmick, which was cool. Uh, feud with the main event Mafia, kind of. The brain injury and alliance with Orlando Jordan. Jordan. Uh, then he would go to do the storyline with ODB and Abyss, and I think eventually become the women's champion, the knockout champion. Yeah, or something, maybe. 
I think wasn't wasn't didn't he become the knockout champion? I'll have to look at that. I'm not sure, but he became the TNA World Heavyweight Champion. I know that. Uh, all, of course, ultimately he lost his title to Bobby Lashley. The Beatdown Clan was a part of Impact Wrestling moving forward, and then he and and then Eric Young would go be a part of GFW for in 2015. Uh, attacking Jeff Jarrett and stealing the King of the Champion or King of the Mountain Championship, he was defeated by Johnny Gargano after the match. Jarrett took the title from Young, and then Jarrett happily welcomed Young to GFW after he turned on TNA. Of course, returned to NXT. Young returned to the WWE, made his NXT debut uh, April twenty eighth, twenty sixteen. And then now he has been moving on to do great things with Sanity, and I hope they are another team that does not get buried these guys are such talented stars they need to not be buried here's a guy who doesn't get a lot of recognition that debuted in 98 as well how about Cassius Ono now this dude Chris Hero if you will Chris Hyde or wife beater whatever you want to call him you know he did debut in 98 in Xenia Ohio he was Sean Hart Throb Halsley or Halsey um, in the Unified Championship Wrestling Promotion um, but of course, he has had kind of like a long tenured journeyman career, been all over the place, and I'm not even going to list all the different places Chris Hero has been because it has been, if you name the promotion, he's probably wrestled there at least a match, as, is how I want to say that. Like, he has been all over. Of course, he debuts back in 2012 and 13. He gets on the uh, run at Florida Championship Wrestling kind of before it officially becomes NXT, but then in 2016, he gets brought back to NXT, but he's kind of just been spinning his wheels, guys. He just keeps spinning his wheels. This is another case of a guy who's extremely talented as a wrestler, but because he's stuck in the WWE box, he can't break out. These are all guys who I feel like they were impatiently waiting what the Bullet Club could do, and it wasn't until Cody and the Bucks decided to make that move. Let's move on to another person that debuted in... uh, Oh, I guess technically because she was a Nitro girl in 98 under the name of Storm was Charmel, which you guys know as Booker T's real-life wife. Queen Charmel, as it were. So she obviously has a long tenure career in both WCW and the WWF and TNA. Uh, so it's cool. I mean, it's crazy to see all these people. Uh, moving forward, we've got the Hardy Boys. We could talk for days about the Hardy Boys. I don't have anybody to talk to today, folks, so I'm kind of like... Losing energy just telling you guys people that have debuted. You probably knew all these people debuted in 98, and I'm just regurgitating that information to you. But the Hardy Boys are dope. It's also sad to say that Matt officially announced retirement. At least he said Woken Matt Hardy will not be in a WWE ring again. So maybe they're just effing with us. They'll give him some time off, and he'll come back as Broken Matt Hardy. And they can actually do the Broken gimmick properly. We'll see. We shall see. Uh, Jeff Hardy, we're going to be talking about him later, too. He was involved in an incredible match in Hell in a Cell. They actually kicked off the show. We're going to get into that in a minute. Hardy Boys, though, you know, one of the teams they were feuding with for the longest was The Brood, who also debuted in 1998. It's cool because The Brood debuted individually in 98, and then they kind of came together. So, uh, Gangrel, August 16th of 98. Edge, June 22nd of 98. Christian, September 27th at 98. And then Christian and Edge become kayfabe family. 
So that's pretty cool. And then they obviously go on to join and create the brood. Had to turn that sneeze into a, uh, you know, a moving forward point. But they debuted as a group in October 26th of 98, which is awesome. And, of course, Edge, Christian, and Gangrel went to go on to do fantastic things. Edge being a multi-time champion and doing all kinds of things for WWE and the first Money in the Bank winner and the first cash-in to win at New Year's Revolution against John Cena. And you think about Christian, and he's kind of like almost become a, a quasi-journeyman wrestler. You know, long-time WWE guy, leaves, goes to TNA, becomes their champ, their real dude, and then comes back to WWE to win some more titles and do some more things before also hanging up the boots. And then doing the Edge and Christian Totally Awesome show and the Totally Awesome podcast that they do. You guys should listen to that. For sure. All right, let's move on, folks, because there's something else that happened in 1998, and I can talk a hell of a lot more about that than the other things. But in 1998, we got King of the Ring, where Undertaker and Mankind destroyed each other. All right, so I've watched this match as recently as yesterday. And if that's for you guys who are listening, it would have been on Monday. And for me, it was yesterday. But for you, that would be Tuesday. So it's not Tuesday that I watched it because I'm recording this. I'm not watching that. But anyways, Hell in a Cell is a a fucking crazy. That match was and will forever be one of the most disturbing, shocking things you can watch in a professional wrestling ring. And we're going to talk about something else that was disturbing here in a minute, too. It's all it all ties in together, folks. So what happens is Undertaker and Mankind are going to have this Hell in a Cell match. First ever Hell in a Cell match. Mankind walks out first, throws the chair up to the top of the cell, and then climbs it. Now, behind the scenes, here's some things that people don't know. Vince had asked Mick, hey, you went up to the top of the cell earlier this afternoon, right? Mick lied and said, oh, yeah, I was up there. I checked it out. It was high. It was cool. He goes, okay, and you were comfortable being up there, right? And Mick lies again, and as he quotes saying it's the biggest lie of his life, he says, yeah, I I was okay up there. It wasn't scary. Mick says, knowing full well that if I actually now, having done the match, if I would have went up earlier in the day, I would not have wanted to do those spots or even have thought about any of the things that we were trying to do uh, leading up to that. I would not have been a part of that at all. So here's a crazy thing. Undertaker goes to this match because he's second out with a broken foot. Undertaker's quoted as saying, I happened to have fractured my ankle. It was such an important time in the business, you know, you knew you had to do it. So you just grit your teeth and you go in there and you do what you do. Uh, Mankind said that compounded the troubles we were facing. We reminisced a couple of years later about what we were even doing in that situation. He willingly entered it with a broken foot, which speaks volumes to the kind of competitor he is. Undertaker shooting back saying, am I going to be able to get up onto that cell? The answer is yes, because I don't know how, but I was always going to get up there. It was definitely an exciting way to start the Hell in a Cell match. As I was speaking earlier, Mankind says, I don't remember the build-up to the day other than being approached by McMahon and him asking me if I had been on top of the structure earlier in the afternoon. I assured him that I had, which was the biggest lie I had told at that point in my life. And then he asked if I was comfortable up there. I assured him, which I, I assured him I was, which became the new biggest lie I'd ever told in my life because I had ever gone to the top of that structure in the afternoon. I wouldn't have been scaling it in the evening because it was terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. I know there are people. Sorry, I ditched my nose. I know there are people who are not afraid of heights in the WWE universe, but I am not one of them. Uh, 
Another thing to talk about is in the match, okay, so to back up what actually happens in the match, they start on top of the cell, Mick gets thrown from the top of the cell and goes through an announce table, and it seems like the match is over. Like, literally, they shut the match down immediately. No questions asked, you know. So the match gets shut down, and the cell starts to raise up, and Undertaker's on top of the cell, and I'm like, well, are they going to let Undertaker down, or is he kind of trapped up there? And obviously, as you know, he isn't trapped up there. Uh, they are trying to get Mick onto a stretcher, but at that time, the way they had done Hell in the Cell, they didn't really create a lot of space for them to bring the stretcher through. So they get the, the Hell in the Cell up, the stretcher comes through, they put Mick on the stretcher, they're wheeling him out, and he's fighting them off. No, he doesn't want to. The cell comes back down. Mick climbs to the fucking cell, gets out of the... Gets off of the stretcher, out of the fucking brace and everything, and starts climbing the cell again crazily. He and Undertaker barely trade blows. He doesn't really get a solid punch or anything in Undertaker. He's just kind of swinging it air, hoping to connect with something. And that is very important in the next part because Taker grabs Mick for a choke slam. And Mick, typically speaking, if he's going to do the choke slam, he's got to kind of jump a little bit to give Taker the leverage to choke slam him down, right? But Mick just kind of falls on his back, which saves his life because he falls through the cage and lands directly on the back of his shoulder blades. And he falls like 12 feet, right? Directly on his back and like close to his neck. So all kinds of, whoa, what's happening? One of the most enduring images during the fight was when there was like what looked to be a booger hanging out of uh, Mick's face after he was struck by a chair that followed him from off the top of the ring. So when he, you know, so Taker says, I remember punching him, trying to talk some sense into him, but just being distracted by what I thought was a booger in his nose. Come, come to find out it was one of his incisors that went through his lip and ended up in his nose. Mick says, I, I remember having the presence of mind to think if I could just stick my tongue through that uh, would wiggle a, a little bit. It would create a compelling image. On the behind-the-scenes stuff, actually, Sergeant Slaughter tries to step in, and we they get Mankind halfway back on the stretcher, and Slaughter is, is, is saying, you know, we get him halfway back, and he started saying, no, I want to go back, I want to go back. And I said, no, you're not going anywhere, you're going to the hospital. The next thing I know, he jumps up and starts climbing up. Everybody in the building, from Mankind's perspective, says, I thought everybody in the building thought the match was over. I don't know for sure if I could keep going, but I said I was going to give it my best. How fatigue saved Mick's career, and I was just talking about this earlier. So Mick was so tired that he couldn't jump on the cage, so he tries to sell Taker's choke slam. It didn't actually work. Mick says, and I quote, if I had gone all the way up like I usually do for choke slams, that would afford me the safest landing uh, on a mat inside a ring. That I would have over-rotated and landed high on his shoulder, on my shoulders and likely never wrestled again. Taker says, I totally agree with that. We were, we're talking about a couple of inches. That could have been catastrophic. Really, it could have. Slaughter said, it just made the most incredible thud. It makes you sick to see it, and you could see something in his nose. What Vince told them after the fight. Slaughter says, we put him back on the table. Oh, let's talk about how the match ends, actually, because there's a couple more things that, that come to light, and, I, and, they're, and they're not even going to talk about them. I can't. This is a weak ass. Okay, anyways. So let's keep talking about all these things that actually happened in the match. The, the Mick chokeslam thing, and then Taker comes down. And then there's some chair shots, and then Mick gets the tacks, and Mick puts the tacks all over the mat, 
And then he's kind of got Taker in a sleeper, but then Taker lifts up and drops on his back. So Mick goes into the tax on his back with the weight of Taker on top of him, crushing him into the tax. And it's like, oh my God, that's awful. And uh, Slaughter says, we put him back on the table after the match. He wanted to let me know his shoulder was hurt, but he smiled at me and he could see a gash under his lip. They started stitching him up right there. Just an incredible sight to see. Mr. McMahon sat me down and said, you have no idea how much I appreciate what you've done for this company, but I never want to see anything like that again. Now, here's some more things that happened in the match that aren't actually brought up into this. So after the thumbtacks happen and, and Taker drops on his back, he gets Mick up for a tombstone and tombstones him into the tax. So there's tax in Mick's head as well a little bit. And then they start to, after the match is over, they start to bring a stretcher out. They try to put Mick, they try to put Mick on the stretcher and Mick asked Jack Doan, I believe, or Chad Patton, he goes, have I already been on the stretcher tonight? And Chad says, yeah, earlier. And he said, well, then walk me out of here because I'm not, I can't have been on two stretchers in one night. I just can't do that. Sorry, it'll ruin my career. So he literally got walked out. He could barely even stand, and they walked him to the back where, like, uh, Slaughter said he got stitched up. You know, that King of the Ring 98 was crazy, too, because I think it also had uh, the first ever first blood match maybe it might not have been the first ever first blood match but uh let's see if it was the first blood matches we're gonna look at the history of it doesn't say in the wwe the first one damn it i hate the internet Ugh. anyways yeah so the Kane versus Austin first blood match for the wwf championship Kane defeats austin but the very next night loses the title back uh, and the match right before that was Taker versus Mick. So think about that. The like craziness that you witness Undertaker versus Mankind in the Hell in a Cell and all the shit that was endured in that 16 minutes. It's a 16-minute match, super short. It feels like it goes on for hours because of how just vicious and fucking crazy the match is and how brutal it is towards Mick. I mean, really, Taker took very little damage that entire match, and it was mostly Mick taking crazy bump after crazy bump after crazy spot. It was fucking insane. Uh, something that you cannot ever forget. However, let's talk about the future. Let's move forward to the now. Because just this past weekend was Hell in the Cell 2018, and we got to talk about it. We're going to talk about the matches that happened on the card, briefly discuss them, briefly discuss some of the things that I thought about the event, and we'll move forward. So first of all, the prelim show was the New Day, or the, pre- the prelim match was the New Day, defeating Rusev Day. Uh, for the SmackDown Tag Team Championships. As I mentioned earlier, Kofi and Big E defending the titles. Uh, match went about almost nine minutes. It was really good. It was really well done. It made both teams look good for different reasons. And I like Rusev Day. I think that's a great teaming. I love the New Day, obviously, for every reason that I could state in the world because they're great, funny, fantastic, hilarious, comical, geniusly created characters for professional wrestling. And they're just ridiculous enough to work. The first official match for the... Oh, by the way, also, Hell in a Cell this year, red. Red. It was it was blood red. It was awesome. But the first match of the night is a Hell in a Cell match. Randy Orton versus Jeff Hardy. Welcome the train of our existence. 24 minutes and 50 seconds of this match in the Hell in a Cell, and they did not walk out the same. There were some brutal spots across the board. 
the finish of the match was fucking violent. Jeff was hanging from the top of the Hell in a Cell and swinging like he because uh, Randy Orton was on a table below and he was gonna like swing and let go and then land on Orton on the table through the table and it was gonna be dope and he's probably gonna win the match. Orton moves and he goes through the table chest fucking first. I'm pretty sure he took the fucking bar of the table to his chest, which definitely hurt. There was a spot in the match where Orton got whipped with Jeff's belt and the belt had studs and literally spiked all across all of Orton's back. So he had these little pinholes that were just bleeding all over his back in the, in the design of that belt. Uh, the other major spot of the night was this chair shot that Hardy lands really awkwardly on, on Randy Orton. And then there's this like fucking alien looking thing coming out of his fucking leg. And it was gross, and his leg was, like, bleeding profusely, and he knew something was wrong. He could barely put weight on it, and that was kind of how the match finished, how it did. So I thought the match was great. It was violent. It was what you want to see in a match. It wasn't what I was expecting, I guess. Like, Jeff Hardy has taken some pretty crazy bumps. He said he was going to do something pretty crazy, but falling from the top of the Helm Cell face first isn't what I would constitute as one of the most crazy things he's ever done in a WWE, or any ring, for that matter. Uh, the second match on the card was Becky Lynch versus Charlotte Flair. Charlotte Flair going in as the SmackDown Women's Champion. This feud boiling over from SummerSlam. We've got a 13-minute and 50-second barn burner that goes back and forth. You're not sure what's going to happen. And then ultimately, Becky Lynch defeats Charlotte for the SmackDown title, regains the title, and then denies the handshake at Charlotte, keeping the feud f- fully alive for the future. Up next, we've got the WWE Raw Tag Team Champions, Dolph Ziggler and Drew McIntyre, facing off against Dean Ambrose and Seth Rollins. Again, a good back-and-forth match. It goes about 25 minutes. Uh, Great hot tags and energy and excitement and crazy spots galore and just um, some of the best workers. Dean Ambrose's new style is so brutal. I love it. I absolutely love it. 24 minutes, 52 seconds. The longest match of the night was this tag team match. Up next was another... In the legacy of wrestling, there are like certain matchups that you will never leave off the table. You will always talk about them as a wrestling fan. You're going to talk about your your Hogan Macho Man, Hogan Warrior, Macho Man Warrior technically, I guess you could say. Uh, I mean, you talk about Austin Rock. You talk about like uh, Lesnar and Angle, or Orton, and Cena, or Batista, and Triple H, some of these feuds that just transcend one match, and this next match um, is a part of transcending that, because these two have had classic matches on every platform they've ever performed on, and that's AJ Styles versus Samoa Joe. This match was brilliantly done, well played, timed beautifully, action-packed, across-the-board emotionally driven, uh, well, 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 I guess played out. I don't, played out's not the right word, but they left me on the edge of my seat for the majority of that match. And then the finish with AJ in the Coquina clutch, rolling through into a pen that ends up claiming him to still be the champion. Awesome. AJ's still champ. It doesn't really make Samoa look weak because Joe was beating him. He had his back. It was over. Technically speaking, AJ could have tapped. No questions asked. He didn't. So up next on the card, the Miz and Maurice versus Daniel Bryan and Brie Bella. This mixed tag match going 13 minutes was a good, fun match. 
um, highlighting both teams of people. I mean that in the fact that it's a mixed tag match means the ladies got to work together exclusively, almost exclusively, and Miz and DB got to do what they do best, which is go in the ring against each other. And, you know, it's funny, as personal as they make it seem, I feel like those dudes really are great friends and have an amazing chemistry together. Ultimately, Ms. Maurice cheaply, speaking, win and by defeating Daniel Bryan and Brie Bella. Up next, we had a match that eh, it was okay. I don't hate it. It was the shortest match on the card, which I think is kind of telling. It was also like your buddy grabbed the controller who's never played a professional wrestling game before in their life and just could do the same six moves, same three moves, same one move. Ronda with like the hip toss thing, going to the armbar thing, like I get it, that's like your thing, but you do it a couple times in a match and it kind of diminishes the power of it. It's like you got to broaden your arsenal a little bit and bring it a little more. So Ronda obviously defeats Alexa Bliss for the Raw Women's title in a 12-minute short match. Easily put her away. I think the cell on the arm break or the arm injury or whatever looked bad. I really didn't like it. I don't think Alexa sold it well. Her arm was not in any point of pressure, and she was tapping immediately as soon as the hold was put on. And maybe, oh, she was a coward and knew she didn't want to get hurt, so she tapped quicker. Okay, but as a, as a you're trying to win the championship, and you're going to just immediately tap without any pressure being actually put on your arm yet? Like, she hadn't even pulled back. And, and Alexa Bliss is tapping. So I'm, I'm a little bit perplexed by that booking decision, but I, I digress. The last match of the night is one that we must discuss because it comes with controversy. Roman Reigns, Braun Strowman, Hell in a Cell match for the WWE Universal title. Mick Foley as special guest referee. These guys go back and forth bludgeoning each other for 20-some-odd minutes until... Bam! Brock Lesnar comes out and fucks up everybody. He kicks the door in. Heyman incapacitates Mick Foley with some pepper spray. Lesnar then attacks both Strowman and Reigns with broken pieces of table, performing F5s on each of them before departing. Second ref came out, who was not Mick, and declared that neither men could continue, resulting in the no contest. Thus, Reigns retains his title. And now Strowman is the fourth person to fail gaining a championship after cashing in their money in the bank. And the first to fail by a no contest ruling, which I think they're going to be making some... Um, oh, you know what? There's even another fucking event happening, I do believe, that we're going to need to talk about, right? Uh, I didn't. I don't know what it's called. But there's a rematch happening with with Roman and Braun, but it's also includes, it also includes Lesnar. I need to look... Oh, okay. For WWE's Crown Jewel event, their return to Saudi Arabia that will happen Friday, November 2nd. So this isn't going to get resolved until November 2nd, which is even then after WWE Evolution, which we're going to get into here in a second. So no resolve from Hell in a Cell until at least November to see who comes out as the Universal title. And let me tell you folks, whoever has the title in November, look for them to hold it until Mania. And that's who's going to be champ, no matter what. That's the only way I can look at it because you're going to be setting it all up, okay? Oh, you know what I forgot to mention about is uh, Ziggler and, uh, what was it? It was Ziggler and Rollins that fell off the top of the cell through the announced tables. Uh, that was also a cool moment from the night. I totally forgot that spot happened. There's too many things going on in my world. So, moving on from Hell in a Cell, the, the next major pay-per-view we have going on is WWE Super Showdown. 
this event is going to be taking place in Melbourne, Australia at the Melbourne Cricket Ground. It's a humongous, ginormous event with some crazy matches. And we're going to go ahead and just throw down these matches. I'll quickly, briefly say who I think wins. We'll move forward. Triple H with Shawn Michaels versus The Undertaker with Kane. Undertaker with Kane. Going to win that match, no question. Bobby Lashley and John Cena versus Kevin Owens and Elias. I kind of want Kevin Owens and Elias to win, but I feel like John Cena is making his return. He's going to win this match because he's with Bobby Lashley. That's going to elevate Lashley a little bit. Hopefully, John Cena will then get back into the thigh. That's probably what's going to happen. I think I want to see Elias and KO win. Here is a singles match to determine the number one contender for the WWE Championship. Daniel Bryan versus The Miz. Meaning, here are some matchups we can look forward to. We're either going to get Daniel Bryan versus AJ Styles. Daniel Bryan versus Samoa Joe. The Miz versus AJ Styles. Or The Miz versus Samoa Joe. Those are some spectacular matchups that I cannot wait to see the outcome of. But I think Daniel Bryan wins this number one contenders match as much as I want to see. As much as I want to see The Miz win, I think Daniel Bryan has to win for the other thing I need to see happen on this card to happen. Up next, you've got The Shield versus the Shield Deflectors. I don't know. Braun Strowman, Dolph Ziggler, and Drew McIntyre will go up against The Shield in a six-man tag team match. And then also a six-person match. The Bella Twins and Ronda Rousey will face the Riot Squad. Liv Morgan, Ruby Riot, and Sarah Logan. And they had some action on Raw this past Monday. Also announced for the Super Showdown, AJ Styles versus Samoa Joe. That is a singles match for the WWE Championship. I look to see... Okay, by the way, Riot Squad is not going to win that match. Bella Twins, Ronda Rousey easily win that match, the six-woman tag match. The Shield wins the six-dude tag match. AJ Styles gets beat for his title, and Samoa Joe walks down as the new champ. That's why Daniel Bryan, Samoa Joe, it makes sense. DB's a face. SJ's a heel. That's a great match made in heaven they'll put on classics. Cedric Alexander versus Buddy Murphy for the Cruiserweight Championship. Buddy Murphy is the hometown boy here. He's going to win the Cruiserweight title, or they're going to get booed out of the fucking country. Just mark my words. The New Day versus The Bar. For the WWE SmackDown Tag Team Championships, look for the bar to recapture and further their feud with the New Day. The New Day are a great team who bounce back amazingly from losing the tag titles. It's actually almost better for them to at some point soon lose the tag titles and then regain them from the bar. That way you can further the feud and keep the tag division fresh because I think it's starting to get a little stale and I think you need to do something different. Asuka and Naomi versus the Iconics and Billy Kay and Peyton Royce. That's just a tag team match. I ask, uh, let's do Asuka and Naomi. The Iconics will not be winning, but maybe because they're from Melbourne. So maybe, I don't know. And Becky Lynch versus Charlotte Flair in a rematch for the SmackDown Women's Championship. Look for Becky Lynch to hold that title. Actually, you know what? Let's flip that script. Charlotte definitely wins here, and they're just going to keep trading the title off for a minute. This has got to be like kind of Rock Austin-esque. Where it's back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. It's okay if the title reigns are short. If you have a good feud and a reason to have the title short, be short, the title reigns be short, you know? So Super Showdown is not the only thing we've got coming on going on in October for professional wrestling in the WWE world. We also have WWE Evolution now. I could sit here and say 
There are three officially in- announced matches, which is Lo Shirai and Tony Storm, the Mae Young Classic tourn- Tournament final match, Alexa Bliss versus Trish Stratus in a singles match, and Lita versus Mickey James in a singles match. However, there are several other matches that are to be announced, and I don't want to have to be announced Evolution versus the Shield Breakers. So guess what happened? Allegedly, the match card was leaked. And we're going to talk about these match cards. And we're going to talk about what it means. Okay, so here we go. We've got Rhea Ripley versus Ginny versus Killer Kelly versus Dakota Kai for the NXT UK Women's Championship. There will be a special announcement segment. Carmella talk show with the ladies of Glow, possibly the new show on Netflix. Maybe not, uh, but maybe. Uh, Riot Squad versus Sasha Banks, Bailey, and Ivory. That's a cool team up. The Mae Young Classic 28 finale, which is Tony Storm versus Lo Shirai, which I already said. 20 Women Battle Royal winner faces Carrie Sane for the NXT Women's Championship. Asuka versus Ember Moon in a reigniting of their feud from NXT. Naomi versus Melina, which has been teased on Twitter. Kari Sane versus the winner of the Battle Royal. Not sure who the winner of the Battle Royal will be, but regardless, Kari Sane and the winner of the Battle Royal for the NXT Women's Championship will be great. As I said, Alexa Bliss versus Trish Stratus. Alisa... Alicia Fox and Kelly Kelly versus the Iconics versus Mandy Rose and Sonya Deville versus Beth Phoenix and Italian Natalian Natalia for the WWE Women's Tag Team Championships. Yes, you heard that right. According to this leak, we will be getting new WWE Women's Tag Titles. And I, going out on a limb here, look like I would just guess the Iconics will win. Makes sense to put a new team over here. Beth Phoenix isn't going to come back and defend a title full-time. Natalia is not going to want to be stuck in a tag division like that necessarily. Maybe Mandy Rose and Sonya Deville win. Maybe Alicia Fox and Kelly Kelly win. I don't know. Becky versus Charlotte Flair for the SmackDown Women's Championship again. Again, which again, here we go. This is where if Charlotte's the champ after the Super Showdown, Becky coming into Evolution and winning, it's a huge moment. It makes the whole thing bigger. It keeps growing and evolving this feud, which is great. And then lastly, the last alleged announced match for this card is Nikki Bella versus Ronda Rousey for the Raw Women's Championship. That, that would be incredible. We'll see if it happens. So we'll see if all these things actually do come to light. Some of these other matches have already been announced, so it wasn't really a surprise. Mickey James versus Lita has already been announced. Alexa Bliss and Trish you know, has already been announced. So we're just kind of waiting for more of the announcements. You're probably going to see some of these um, wrestlers that I was talking about that are part of the Evolution card uh, show up sooner rather than later. Maybe Asuka and Ember Moon. Um, maybe that's going to be like an interpromotional match. Like Raw's going to put up a woman. SmackDown's going to put up a chick. They're going to go head-to-head. Ember Moon will be Raw. Asuka would be SmackDown. That's how I see it. Naomi and Melina, like I said, they've been kind of teasing a feud on Twitter. So uh, this looks to be awesome. If they pull this off, it would actually be fantastic. So let's look lastly here at what WWE Crown Jewel is going to be. And it looks like there has only been this announcement that the Crown Jewel will be live on WWE Network and available on pay-per-view outside of the Middle East. It will be the second event in Saudi Arabia. And the main event looks to be Roman Reigns versus Brock Lesnar versus Braun Strowman for the first ever WWE 
Oh, 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 for the for the universal title and the first ever WWE World Cup tournament to determine the best in the world. Man, that's exciting. That could be incredible. Whoever does Photoshop for WWE, fucking stop. They've got the picture of Brock Lesnar, and he looks like the painting from Ghostbusters 2. What the fuck was that guy's name? Ah, Vigo the Carpathian. That's right. So, Vigo the Carpathian and Brock Lesnar in this picture for Crown Jewel look a lot alike. And it's really fucking hilarious, and it's kind of blowing my brain holes. So, anyways, folks, I think this is going to be it for this week's episode of Journey into Wrestling. As I said, you guys can check out the Journey into Comics network at journeyintocomics.com, where you can get all the different shows across our network, including Journey into Comics, The Poor Report, or not The Poor Report. I keep doing that. Ah! Try it again. Journey into Comics, Poor News, Poor Entertainment, Journey into Wrestling, Adulting and Easy, Foodie Watching Movies. Uh, we've got Podcastrophy, Gallif Radio, Kids for Sale, Brews with Dudes, a Best of the Week show, and a couple new ones about to be announced very soon, folks. Because we're going to be getting ready to announce our January 2019 first half of the year schedule. Um, we will be bringing some new shows, some new members, and some new content to the network. So we really hope you guys are checking us out. We want to thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of Journey into Wrestling. Please check us out on the few social media platforms we have, mainly our Facebook, facebook.com backslash journey into wrestling. As always, for Journey into Wrestling, I have been your host, Nate. This has been Season 3, Episode 4. Shield Breakers. Later, guys.